Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and this is TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what the Bible says so that we can know what to believe. The Bible says that we are to give a defense for everything that we believe or be ready in season and out of season to give a defense for everything that we believe. God's Word is alive and active, works in the hearts of, of, of believers. Uh, it it reaps 30, 60, or 100-fold uh, for a heart that is good. And God's word is good for correction, reproof, and doctrine that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us on YouTube or Facebook or are watching this uh, on podcast. And if you'd like to subscribe to TruthQuest Podcast, you can do that wherever uh, you get your podcast at. All you need to do is look for TruthQuest with Robert Furrow, and you'll be able to find that. Now, if you have any questions for us, we ask that you write the word question in front of the question, and then write out your your question, reread that a couple of times, and then go ahead and put it in the comment section. It's good to see you guys as you guys start to pop on here. Uh, I hope you guys are really doing well. We have our first question up and ready, and this was asked at a previous Q&A. Our first question says, once saved, always saved even with repeated sin. Now, I rewrote this a little bit because there were a lot of details on it, but once saved, always saved, even with repeated sin. So, this is something that I have changed my mind on over the years. I used to believe that if you were genuinely saved, that it was very, very difficult to lose your salvation, but it could be done. And that once you did it, then it was impossible to renew you to repentance. That's how severe it was. Um, But after teaching through and studying Hebrews chapter 6, the unforgivable sin, a few other things, I realized that that unable to, to make it back to repentance is those that have a lot of knowledge, a lot of information, who should have received Jesus. They know the truth, and then they've rejected it. And there comes a point where they cross a line where they cannot be saved. That is not someone who is apostate, who is backslidden, who walked away from God. Even a believer who says that they are a non-believer, we know that apostates get to come back. Uh, So I have, as I said, changed my view to where I believe that if you are genuinely saved, you've genuinely made a commitment to Christ, then I believe that he will leave the 99 and go after the one. If you become an apostate, if you walk away, that he will bring you back again because your heart was genuine in the very beginning and God's doing that work. Now, the question is, once saved, always saved, even with repeated sin. Now, and you need to know that this is one of the gray areas in the church, right? There are those who say you can't lose your salvation or leave it, and there are those who say that you can. Uh, the, the truth is, is that if somebody is an apostate and they're living apart from God, neither side is going to say that that person is saved. The once saved, always side camp is going to say the fact that they walked away is evidence that they never really had a commitment with Christ. The other side is going to say, well, they walked away and they need to return and be born again, again, as it were, which I, I don't believe in. I don't believe in either one of those extremes. Uh, I believe that Christians do sin. And I think the analogy that we see with that is with Peter uh, having Jesus wash his feet. Peter said, you'll never wash my feet, Lord. 
And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. And so Peter said, then my head and my hands. And Jesus said, I don't need to wash your head and your hands. You're already clean. I just need to wash your feet. The question that we want to ask when it comes to repeated sin is, is there a real repentance? This is why it's impossible for us to make judgments and why God says to us that we are not supposed to judge because I don't know what's going on in the heart of someone. If they sin and they do a sin again that has been a stronghold for them, I don't know if they're truly brokenhearted over it, if they've repent, repented from it. And I hate to try to speak for God, to say, this is what God will do. What I can say is that unharbored, unrepented sin in the life of a believer, a believer who is practicing sin, reveals that they have not made a genuine commitment to Christ. This is unrepented. It's someone who is in sin and they say, no, I don't need to worry about this. I'm okay with it. They aren't trying to do what's right. The Bible says that if we love Jesus, we're going to keep his commandments. Uh, Jesus himself said, if you love me, then, then you'll want to do the things that I say. And so that's the heart of a real genuine Christian. They want to do what God wants them to do. So if you have someone who's living in a, in a just unconfessed, unrepented sin, and they will not turn away from that at all, then there is a question as to whether or not they ever really made uh, a genuine commitment to Christ. If it's someone who struggles with sin and they are now returning, I just heard of a Christian who kind of told the story of, um, uh, it, was a, it was a video on YouTube, told the story of a man that had had sex when he was a teenager, had recommitted to Christ, had said he wouldn't do it again, and then did it again and came back to God fully brokenhearted that he had done it again and that he had gone to a church and the Lord spoke to him clearly through someone that he was forgiven. And I think that that's the case. Um, the danger is us thinking, well, I'm going to go ahead and keep this in my life and repent later because the Bible says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So if you're playing a game with God, if you're trying to manipulate him and say, well, I'm going to go ahead and be involved in the sin and I'll repent later. What if you don't have an opportunity to repent? I believe if you really do repent that your sins can be forgiven. So the answer to this is, yes, there could be someone with repeated sin that has genuine salvation. And there could be someone that with repeated sin that doesn't have genuine salvation because they have unharbor, um, unrepented, harbored sin in their lives. They've tied it up to the dock and they will not fight against it and they will not get rid of it. So um, that's, the, I, that, that's the answer to repeated sin. Is someone genuine when they do? Uh, a genuine Christian is going to be heartbroken, is going to be grieved over it. He's going to be broken and he's going to be contrite. And maybe God's got to get your attention and convict you and reveal to you uh, that it's wrong. Because there are some who will not allow things to, um, they will not be convicted over certain sin. Like David, who wasn't convicted until Nathan came in and convicted him about his sin. And David was a genuine believer. All right, so thank you very much for your question. I really appreciate that. That's the first question that we have here uh, today. Uh, we're going to go ahead. I'm going to go ahead and go back to the top here, and um, we're just going to take your questions as they come in. If you're just joining us, welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q and A. We look at questions through the lens of Scripture, and we have our 
first question here from Psychman45. Psychman, good to see you. Uh, he says, why is the Bema seat so called? Um, so the, the Bema was a Greek word for judgment. And Paul went before the Bema seat in Corinth. And if you remember, that's when one of the rulers of the synagogue was, was taken instead of Paul and was beaten. And if you go to Corinth today, that is in Greece, then you will you can go up and stand on that Bema seat judgment where Paul was brought before because they discovered it, they've uncovered it. It truly is absolutely amazing that Paul was brought before on Corinth. Um, the difference between the, the white throne judgment and the Bema judgment is that in the white throne judgment, non-believers are being judged for the second death. They are brought to life after the millennium. That is the second death. It is the second resurrection. The first resurrection is anyone who was resurrected before that time. Jesus is a part of the first resurrection. Uh, the rapture of the church is a part of the first resurrection. Uh, saints who are resurrected after the tribulation period and live in the millennium are part of the first resurrection. So you have the first resurrection and the resurrection, second resurrection, which is the resurrection of death. Uh, you have the resurrection of life. Those that are raised, Daniel says, to everlasting life and those who are raised to everlasting contempt. So believers, I believe during the tribulation period, will be in heaven and will go through the Bema seat judgment. This is where all of our motives will be tested. And it's in 1 Corinthians. And what we do for him, if we have the wrong motives, it's wood, hay, and stubble, and it will be burned up. But if it is a genuine jewel, then it will remain. And so we want to do things with the right motive that our rewards can remain. That's the idea of the judgment seat. But every city had a Bema seat. This was a judgment seat that the ruler would judge from that Bema seat. As I said, if you ever get a chance, psych man, uh, to go to Greece or to go on a footsteps of Paul trip, you'll go to the city of Corinth and it really and truly is absolutely amazing when you take a look at um, that Bema seat that's there. The last time we were there, we were able to actually get up on top of that Bema seat. We were there kind of late in the day. People were clearing out and uh, it was it, it's really something to see these places that are historical in the, in the New Testament 2,000 years ago, the things that happened there and um, this Bema seat judgment. Uh, Jesus also said a couple things about judgment. He said that the way we judge is the way we're going to be judged. And the mercy we show is the mercy we're going to receive. So we want to be careful when we're judging people and um, that we judge people the way we would judge ourselves. The Bible also says judge yourself and you won't need to be judged. Meaning be harder on yourself than you are upon, upon any, anybody else. And um, the Bible also says that we are going to be judged by our very words which is just scary. When we're talking about somebody else and someone else's sin, it depends on how merciful we are and we are judged by our own sin. So the Bema seat is a judgment seat. It is a Greek word for a city judgment seat. There will be the white throne judgment, which is the judgment of all living, all, almighty God. That's not a Bema seat judgment. Uh, the, the Bema seat judgment is in Corinthians and it's for the works that we do. Thank you very much, Psych Man. I appreciate uh, your question, and I do hope 
Um, I hope, do hope you guys get an opportunity uh, to get over and to see some of these ruins in Greece and Israel as well. All right. And so we have a question here from Terry. By the way, if you're new here to our TruthQuest Q&A, really glad to have you. Write the word question before your question, then write out your question and we'll bring it in and we'll take a look at it um, and we'll look at them as, as near as we can tell in order. All right. So Hebrews 10.29 seems to contradict once saved, always saved. Can you explain? Yes, I can. And um, let me go ahead and get there. And then I will, let me do it on my phone. Uh, all right, so I'm going to go to Hebrews 10, 29. There, there most definitely is tension in Scripture. And as I said, it, there are good, solid teachers who believe you can't lose your salvation and good, solid teachers who say that you can. All right, so let me see if I can get back. Um, all right, so... Um, so it is a controversial subject and there's tension in, in the scriptures because there's certain passages that talk about enduring till the end and being saved. I just believe that if you are genuinely believing him, you endure to the end and are saved. Um, this is one area that I, I, I kind of hold it with a loose hand in a sense. Um, I'm, I won't be surprised to find out when I get into heaven that it was something different. I do believe that you can genuinely know you are saved and be saved and have the confidence of salvation. You put on the helmet of salvation and have that confidence. So let's take a look at Hebrews 10, 29. We're going to actually take a look a little bit before that. And um, so I brought it up on my phone here. All right. So um, a little bit before that, um, let's go to verse 26 and we'll read it all the way through. All right. So it says, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery um, indignation, which will devour the adversaries. And here, here uh, this is 28. Anyone who has rejected Moses's law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much more worse punishment do you suppose Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace? So I believe that this statement here, and the, the most scary part of it is for if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Uh, that's scary. And if we were just to read that without the context it would certainly make the statement that you're talking about it making in 20 in verse 29 of how much more worse punishment do you suppose will he bring on those worthy who have trampled the son of God underfoot. But, but remember the context of the book of Hebrews are Hebrew Christians who are going back into Judaism. And Paul is also talking to Hebrew Jews like Jesus did, who knew that Jesus was the Messiah but they loved Judaism and didn't want to get away from it. And so it tells them this passage is to them. They've got all of this information. They should know. If anyone should know, it's those that have the Old Testament because they see all of the prophecies. It's why Paul was so successful when he went from city to city and 
uh, preached the gospel, what we call prophecy evangelism, preaching that Jesus was the Christ from the Old Testament, showing that Jesus fulfilled prophecies. And that's a very extremely powerful way to minister uh, to individuals. And so these guys should have known, but they didn't. And they were, they were hanging in there. Remember when the book of Hebrews was written, the temple was still around and they could still go make sacrifices. And so Hebrews says, why do you want a, a high priest who's a man who dies when you have a high priest who will never die, who gave uh, his offering once and for all? So when he begins this whole section here and starts talking about um, if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's talking about those who don't believe. They should believe, but they don't believe. And maybe they're trying to play both sides of the coin, right? They're trying to go to the temple and give sacrifices. And if they sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Meaning that the, temp, the, the temple, the, the sacrifices there no longer are a sacrifice for sin. So they're wanting to leave Christ and they're wanting to go back into Judaism where they can go to the temple and give their sacrifice for sin. But because they walked away from Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. It's done. And then it goes on to say, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fire indignation will devour the adversaries. Then at that point, what you can hope for is that you're going to be judged. Anyone who has rejected Moses's law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So there needs to be a rejection of that law and commitment to Christ. Um, so anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So he's just talking about the way it worked in Moses' law of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the, the, trampled the Son of God underfoot? So how do you trample the Son of God underfoot? You do that by no longer, you're a believer, you're a Christian, and you no longer follow that and you go back into Judaism. And you are saying, that the sacrifice of Christ is no good. I've got to go back to the sacrifices that are given within the temple and they're trampling them underfoot. Uh, this is most likely Jews who have not believed, who have not really genuinely believed in Christ, but they decided to go back into Judaism or decided to not follow Christ and go back into Judaism. It goes on to say that they counted the blood of the new covenant by which he sacrificed a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace because they were going back to the temple. Um, now, again, th this is one of the passages that there's tension and it brings up this tension about once saved, always saved. Were these people who knew the law really well, who were considering following Christ, knew that he was the Messiah, but loved the temple enough that they didn't go back? Or were these Christians who were leaving and going back to the temple? And um, so the context is really, really important here. So, um, Terry, I want to say that I see the point that you're making here. I see the point that I, I see the point that individuals make when they want to use this passage for once saved, always saved. But I think the context, the larger context uh, can be looked at to where it doesn't mean that. And if this passage does mean is just a, an open, broad passage to people, um, then the first verse is really scary. For if we sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Have you ever sin willfully? Have you ever known that you've sinned and sinned anyway? So if that's what that's saying, then we're all lost. But obviously it's talking about to those who are going back into Judaism 
and maybe that haven't made a real commitment to Christ yet. Same thing in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4, and so on. All right, so I hope that that is helpful, Terry. I appreciate your question. Uh, let me go ahead and just get back over here. Um, I guess we're here. Okay, um, so uh, let me see if I got it all. Can you explain? Okay, so hopefully that is a good explanation. I would just suggest diving in a little bit more into the book of Hebrews, the context of the book of Hebrews, because there's a lot of things that could be taken out of context to make them say something that is not true and that most Christians just do not believe. All right, Terry, I really appreciate your question. Good to see you, Daniel. Uh, good to see all of you guys here. I hope you're having a great day. I hope that God really blesses you. I want to give you an invitation to our church service in a couple of hours. We're going to be talking about finishing strong. There's a passage that says that he who has begun a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And um, it talks about how he's confident that they're going to finish the race strong. This is the Philippians. And we want to make sure we finish the race strong. So we have an in-depth line-by-line, verse-by-verse Bible study uh, that we're going to be doing at six o'clock. You can join us online, Facebook, YouTube, or you can come out to our East Campus at six o'clock and our West Campus at 7.15. All right, so um, I appreciate that. So we have a question from Albert. Albert, good to see you. Albert says, um, question. Um, in 2 Samuel 15.30, David weeps as he walks up the Mount of Olives. This is a foreshadowing of when Jesus wept, there is um, there and is Ahithophel's suicide after betraying David, a foreshadowing of Judas. All right, so let's just see. Um, Alex, thank you for your question. Let's see if I can go to that passage and off the top of my head answer those questions. Um, so what I would like to know is what is the context in 2 Samuel 15 of David walking up the um, weeps as he walks up the Mount of Olives. Um, so I'm going to go to 2 Samuel 15 here, and then I'm going to bring you guys in. Second Samuel 15.30. All right, I was reading that going, that doesn't look like the right one to me. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. Oh, let me go ahead and bring you in on this. This is on my iPhone again. So he says, um, okay, so David went up by the Mount of uh, Ascent to the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. Uh, and he had his head covered and went barefoot and all the people who were with him covered their heads as they went, weeping as they went. Then someone told David saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators and Absalom. And David said, oh Lord, I pray you turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Um, all right, so if I've got the right passage here and I think that I do, then uh, this is where Absalom has gone to the heart um, has gone to the gate and as people are walking in and out he would say things like remember Absalom's a really good looking guy right he's he's beautiful from head to toe the Bible says and Absalom stands at the gate and when people come in he says uh, my dad's too busy he won't be able to see you but I can go ahead and uh, uh, judge between you 
And so he took the place of judgment and David didn't do anything about it. And finally, through Ahithophel and some other council, he committed a coup, took control of the kingdom and drove David out. And then the people in David are walking up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and they're weeping as they go. Now Absalom's gonna die from this and David is gonna weep then as well. He's gonna say, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab is gonna rebuke him for that. So that all takes place here. Um, walking, now let me just ask you, look at your question. Uh, David weeps as he walks up the Mount of Olives. Is this a foreshadowing? And when Jesus wept there and is Ahithophel's suicide after betraying David, a foreshadowing. So Jesus comes down the ascent of the Mount of Olives um, is David, David is going, David's going up the ascent, right? So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is coming down. He stops somewhere and he looks over Jerusalem and he weeps for it. And he predicts its total and complete destruction. And that comes true. Um, I, I don't see how this is a type of Jesus uh, weeping over the city, or I don't see how it's a type of Jesus ascending the Mount of Olives. He ascended it to go to Bethany, which is on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And I don't know that Ahithophel, Ahithophel is a type of Judas because the passage in the Old Testament um, that he who betrayed me ate bread at my table is talking about Ahithophel. And um, so, yeah, Ahithophel de definitely is a type of Judas. And, um, and of course, Jesus hands him bread and the Bible tells us that that's a fulfillment of that passage. So you got the near fulfillment of the Hithophel, the far fulfillment of Judas. You see this often with prophecy. Um, so yes, on the second part there, um, Albert, I don't know on the first part. I would, if I, if I was pushed into a corner, I would say, I don't think so. I don't think it's a type. Um, but I'd have to, I want to think about it a little bit more, kind of put it in the old cooker. Remember, answering questions off the top of your head you're trying to go back sometimes 10 years when the last time you really dove into something i'm trying to i think we did do second samuel 2003 2004 so we're looking at 20 years ago now it's it's due and we are going to do a study in the life of david here pretty soon all right so thank you very much albert i appreciate you and i appreciate your question very thoughtful all right and um, if you're new here, we want to welcome you. We hope you guys are really blessed by the time that you spend here. We have a question that we want to bring in from Jari. Jari says, if someone has a dream about current events, how do we know it's from the Holy Spirit? Thank you. Is, um, is Revelation didn't add for the entire Bible or just the book of Revelation? Um, oh, okay. Is Revelation's warning not to add for the entire Bible or just for the book of Revelation. All right, thank you, Jari. I appreciate it. Hope you're having a good day. It's good to see you. Um, if someone has a dream about current events, how do they know it's from the Holy Spirit? Um, I think that the only way you would know is if you can back it up biblically. So if you're having a dream about a current event and that current event is in the Bible and then that current event happens, then you know it was from God. What, whatever the dream about the current event that you have, it's got to come true. Let's just say you have a dream about a current event and you think that something is true with that. Um, and you say, well, I wonder if that was from God. I don't know that there's any way to know. I've heard a lot of people say it. And I think there's a lot of danger 
in people claiming that a dream or a vision or their thought is from God because you're speaking for God and that's always a dangerous thing to do. God has said enough in his word that is so rich and powerful that we don't need to add to it at all. So I've had dreams where I say things like, I think that was from God. And I think that's how you approach it. And in this way, Jari, I think that we're being humble. We're saying, I'm not arrogantly saying, I know that the dream I had was from God. There's plenty of that out there. I just think it's arrogant. And I think that's always a problem because you could be wrong. And I've seen a lot of people be wrong in their commitment towards, um, towards what they believe the truth is or what they believe the truth is within a dream or a vision or something being said to them. Uh, all right. So um, the second question is, is Revelations, uh, don't add the entire book or just the book of Revelation. I think if you're going to take it in context, you need to take it in the book of Revelation. That's, you know, uh, he says, if anyone does or doesn't do the prophecies of this book. And so I think you've got to, uh, got to say that. Um, however, I think there are other passages that you could go to that would give you a warning against adding to the word of God. We know that all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for reproof, correction, doctrine, that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. We know there are people that say they're speaking for God when they're not speaking for God, and that's a real dangerous thing to do. So I think if you're going to take it in its strict context, it would be the book of Revelation. Although I think it's really easy to extrapolate it to the rest of the word of God. What God has said and revealed is for us to pour over, to look into, to see what it says, what God has not said, we want to leave alone and we don't want to uh, act like we're speaking for God when we have no idea whether or not we really and genuinely are speaking for him. All right, Jari, so thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, by the way, the whole revelation question is something that you ask every time you uh, study the book of Revelation. When you get to that particular point, uh, you have a tendency uh, to ask that question. All right, so Requia has a question here. Uh, Requia says, uh, good to see you, by the way, Requia. Um, Hi, my nine-year-old son expressed he may not believe in God. And my dad confirmed he does, but does not subscribe to Christ dying to be saved. I'm so sad about this. What can I do to help them? All right, Requia. Well, um, first of all, that is really young for someone to start saying that they don't believe in God. Uh, there may be influences in school or friends that have influences from school or other relatives that has caused him to make uh, this kind of a statement. I would, if, if I had my nine-year-old son who, who told me that, I would take him to Old Testament passages um, that show that, that have been fulfilled and I would show him the fulfillment of those passages. Once someone gets older, they could go onto YouTube and they can watch the opposite side of that so they can kind of gain ammunition. So um, when I, I use prophecy still when I'm trying to minister to someone who says they don't believe in God anymore. And um, sometimes you'll get, you know, YouTube video statements back and you know that comes from a YouTube video. I think I watched the same video that you watched to, to, to go against um, what you don't believe. I understand it making you sad, um, require. The Bible says, train up your child in the way of the Lord and when he is old, he won't depart. That's a, um, is that more of a proverb? Is that, that 
That, that's just for most kids, bring them up in the way of the Lord and when they're old, they won't depart. Uh, we are living in the day of the great falling away. I think that that's a sign of the last days. And I think that's probably why your son has, has had conversations and somewhere got to the point where he says, I don't believe in God. Um, now, as far as your dad goes, um, does not subscribe to Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Um, I think asking him what he's going to do about his sins. Does he believe he's a good person, doesn't have any sins? Has he ever told a lie? If he has, then what do you call that? A liar. If he, has he ever stolen anything, then what do you call that? A thief. Has he ever blasphemed God? Then he's a blasphemer. So if God's going to judge men, how's he going to judge your dad? I mean, this is the kind of things that I would talk to your dad about. That's the Ray Comfort um, kind of way of evangelism. He's got a ministry called the Way of the Lord. And um, he uses that as evangelism. I don't like that Ray says that's the only way that you're supposed to. It, it, I don't like that he comes across as if it's the only way you're supposed to evangelize. And every other form of evangelism is wrong. I think we should be led by the Spirit. Um, but you say, I'm so sad about this. And I think that that gives you an opportunity, Require, to really fast. When something happens and you're sad about it, and you're heartbroken, I think it's then that you don't eat and that you seek God. Now, you can fast pleasant food. You can eat just bread and water. Um, you, you can offer a time to God of just saying, I want to fast and call out for my dad and for my son. There's a spiritual battle taking place here over the souls of men and women. And Satan is in the job of blinding the eyes of those who do not believe. And so you want to pray for them and pray diligently, ask and keep asking, knock and keep knocking, seek and keep seeking that God would grant them salvation. The Bible says of Lydia in Philippi that the Holy Spirit opened her heart up to the message that Paul was preaching. So we want the Holy Spirit to open the heart of your son up, to open the heart of your father up as um, they hear the message of the gospel or you talk to them about the gospel because it sounds like to me you're going to have a good opportunity to be able to talk to both of these guys about what they're going, you know, what your dad's going to do with the sin and what about the incredible word of God which is unlike any other spiritual book that has prophecy in it that is a historical book that is accurate historically, geographically, scientifically. When it, It's not a scientific book but when it ventures into the realm of science, and other places that the Bible is true. And if it's true archaeologically, geographically, historically, then certainly it's true spiritually. We can trust what the Bible has to say. But pray for them, require, seek God for them, uh, that God would grant them salvation, that God would open up their hearts to receive the word of God. And that's how we should be praying for all of our family and friends who do not know the Lord. And we are living in the day where there is the great falling away. I think it's the last days. And I think that the departure or the great falling away is, is, is among us. I really do. And we need to be really diligently praying for people and looking for opportunities to be able to share our faith with them. All right. So thank you, Require, for um, your question. I really appreciate that. It's good to see you, by the way. And uh, we're going to go ahead and bring in another question that we have from Barbie. Um, Barbie says, uh, why do some Christians celebrate Halloween? I don't think it's right. 
but at the same time, it looks fun. All right. Well, I love your honesty, uh, Barbie. Um, so we talked about this a little while ago. Um, I don't know that we can say all celebration of Halloween is bad. We, there, there's all kinds, you know, I mean, people want to connect this to paganism as they do with Christmas and Thanksgiving and some other holidays that are out there. But when you go back into paganism and you compare Saturnalia with Christmas, they like to throw out these little phrases. They brought trees in their house. They, they decorated with evergreens in their homes. They, um, they, you know, they, they have all of these things that they did that they try to connect with um, paganism. But when you go back and you study Saturnalia, you realize it was a multi-day um, celebration that happened in the winter solstice. And it was nothing like Christmas, nothing. And the same thing with, with uh, Thanksgiving. And so they make pagan holidays out to be something that they're not. And then, so it looks more like the Christian holidays. And so we want to honestly approach it. Certainly we want to stay away from paganism. We don't want to be worshiping false gods or we don't want to be involved in some kind of a ritual, right? I mean, for sure. However, if you have your child dress up as, um, I don't know, King David, right? And your little girl dress up as Esther and you, you go out down a few houses and trick-or-treat to get candy. Hey, you know, th this is a doubtful thing. And the Bible says in Romans 14, not to argue over doubtful things. It says, let each one be fully convinced in their own mind. So th I think there is a way to celebrate Thanksgiving that is not dishonoring to God. And that's what you got to ask. Obviously, there are things in Thanksgiving that cross the line. And you have to determine whether or not those things um, are something that would be dishonoring to God or whether it's just kind of having fun. There are those that can trace Halloween back to Christian roots. Um, I don't know about that, by the way. I do know that you can you know, trace the Christmas tree back to Martin Luther and the candles on it were supposed to speak of stars. Um, and so a lot of these arguments against them I think there's a way that we can celebrate them that is honoring to Jesus and, and, and lifts up Christ and worships him. I know the Jehovah Witnesses are not going to agree on this. And I know that there are some extreme Christians who are not going to agree on it. But hey, be fully convinced in your own mind. Do what you want to do. I mean, who says you have to celebrate Halloween in any way or Christmas in any way or Thanksgiving in any way? If you don't want to do it as a Christian, don't do it. You're, you, you, you have that right to be able to to do it as a Christian. Um, so when you say, I don't think it's right, um, I I don't know that I would get into judgment on other believers. I think that what I would do is determine what I, how I want to, to celebrate it, how I want my kids or my grandkids to celebrate it and make sure that it, that it isn't dishonoring to God. And, and if I can do that, and if I decide I don't want to be involved in it at all, that's great. I just don't want to judge other people. And that's what happens when you become legalistic. Pretty soon you're like, you celebrate Halloween? I don't celebrate Halloween. I would never celebrate Halloween. I'm a genuine believer and you're not. And that's the danger of the legalistic lifestyle. We become, we become more like Pharisees and we should turn and run from that as much as we can. So why do some Christians still celebrate Halloween? I think they have the freedom to. Paul said, we of all Christians are the most free. 
but use your, don't use your liberty as an occasion to sin, uh, but use it as an opportunity for edification. So you would be edified by him. And so we have freedom to be able to do these things. And someone who's having their kids dress up like uh, a Marvel character um, or, you know, whoever, and then go out trick-or-treating, I don't want to judge them. Um, someone who dresses up as a vampire or, or whatever, I, I still choose not to judge them. There might be those who do. Uh, I, I just choose not to, not to judge them. And I'm just going to let them rise and stand before God and make my own decisions on what I do. All right. So I do think you say it looks fun. I do think there is a way that you can celebrate Halloween that is still honoring to God. Um, uh, as I say, some Christians trace it back to um, All Saints Day, which is a day of remembrance of the dead, um, different than the, you know, um, the Mexican, as in Mexico, um, uh, what is it, de morte or whatever it is that they celebrate, certainly different than that. But we can remember those, a day set aside to remember those saints that have left us is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. All right. I just think that there obviously has been a lot of real evil that has come out of this that we don't want to be a part of. So we got to make a decision on all of that. All right. And I know there's a disagreement on it. Hey, there's, um, there's always disagreement on these kind of things and that's okay. All right. So, um, let me go ahead and bring in a question here from All Pink. All Pink, it's good to see you. I hope things are going well for you. All right. Uh, she says, um, is it okay for a believer to believe in oneness and not in the Trinity or vice versa and still be saved? The, the danger in this, All Pink, is that um, the oneness doctrine teaches that all there is is the Son and that the Son manifests as the Father and manifests as the Holy Spirit. So when there's the Holy Spirit, there's no Father and Son. When there's the Son, there's no Father and Holy Spirit. When there's the Father, there's no Son and Holy Spirit. And this is not taught in Scripture. And, and there are problems that come from this theology. There are problems with Scripture. There are other problems. And I think that it is something that we need to stay as far away from as we possibly can. They also believe they're the only ones who are really saved. That You've got to be saved in the name of Jesus or you're not really saved. Uh, could there be someone who believes in oneness theology and be genuinely saved? Sure. You just got to make sure you're not following and serving a different Jesus. Uh, personally, the, yeah, well, the Bible teaches the Trinity. And so... Um, that they are distinct individuals, one in essence, three in persons, and the Bible teaches that clearly. And um, I'll, I'll do a study a little bit later on. It's, it's one that I want to do that is on the dangers of, I think this is called modalism, uh, the dangers of modalism and why it, 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 it is not biblical. Uh, looking at the passages that talk about it not being biblical, I'm not prepared to be able to do that now with all the scriptures that I'd be able to look up all pink, but it is something that I want to do. All right. So, um, yeah, I think the oneness movement itself really is, is very legalistic and borderlines on, um, believing that their legalism 
and what they do causes them to be saved rather than on Jesus Christ. So I would just be very careful with oneness theology. All right. So thank you very much, All Pink. I really appreciate that. Um, I'm not going to say that they're not saved. I don't want to get into the business of judging them or not judging them. All right. So we have a question here from Lynn. I want to go ahead and bring that in. Lynn, it's good to see you. Hope things are going well. Lynn joins us from Facebook. And so Lynn says, I wonder what your thoughts are when people say, oh, you loved one, your loved one is looking down on you from heaven. I think personally, once in heaven, you wouldn't see what is going on here on earth or you would see suffering also. If suffering and pain are over in heaven, wouldn't we not be interested in what is in the world any longer? And um, I follow your thinking there, Lynn. Uh, here's, here's what I think. I think we don't know. This is one of those areas that may, maybe God would allow someone that's died before to, to be present at an important event of someone that they loved maybe God would allow them to be able to look in. I, 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 don't, I don't think they're interested in the things of earth. I think you're right. I think they're in heaven and they're in eternity and their faces are radiant, the Bible says. I think it's Psalms 34. And they looked upon him and their faces were radiant. And I think they're about heavenly things and spiritual things and not about earthly things. And I do not believe that my late wife is around me all of the time. I think she's in the presence of God and I think she's interested in the things of God. And um, I think I had some confirmations that God spoke to me about that particularly. And um, so that's my thoughts on it. I think that there's no way to know though. I mean, there's no passage that says someone who has died can't come back and see. I know when Samuel was brought back from the dead, this is a long time ago, way before Christ, that he was upset. Why'd you, why'd you bother me? Why are you bothering me? Um, and so, uh, other than that, I don't know of a passage that would say that someone cannot die and still see. I do know David said of his son, I will go to him, but he cannot come to me. He cannot come to me, but I will go to him. And, and, um, Hebrews 12, one, the great crowd of witnesses are not people who have died before us. That's all the, the saints that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 that are in the hall of faith that make up this giant, you know, um, stadium full of people that have gone before us and lived their lives for Christ. And, and they're cheering us on that we would live our lives for Christ and do those things that are right and proper as well. All right. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, I just think the, the Bible's fairly silent on it, um, but can't see why God would, would do that. And um, I do think that there are a couple of passages like, like the one with David. And I was just trying to think if there's anything else. That's why I'm kind of like eh, slowly talking this before I end this question. Um, that uh, there may be some other passages that would give us direction one way or another. Um, but I don't think that there's anything that is out there. All right. So we have a question here from Bill. Uh, Bill, good to see you. And I just want to say for those of you that are, are tuning in for the very first time, really glad you're here. This is Truth Quest Podcast. You can subscribe for it anywhere that you get podcasts. You're going to get our full-length teachings. 
Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about finishing strong, God continuing the work in you that he has begun out of Philippians. You're going to get hot topics, which are shorter teachings that deal with hot topics, just like it sounds. And you're going to get these Q&As. And you'll be able to listen to them while you're driving or working or whatever it is that you can do and really find yourself equipped. Um, and if you have a question for our Q&A, then you can put it in the comments, just write the word question in front of it, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense. So we have a question here from Bill and it's good to see you, Bill. And so Bill says, um, when the ruler in Luke 18, 18, asked what he needed to do in order to inherit eternal life, why did Jesus give him a different answer than he gave Nicodemus in John 3, 16? All right, Bill, so I appreciate that. Let's go ahead and take a look at Luke 18. I'm gonna do that on my phone here. Um, Luke 18, 18, easy one to remember. Luke 18, 18, uh, and it says, Okay, the rich young ruler. Okay, good. Yes. Uh, all right. Good. Let's um let's talk about this then. Uh, let me go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. We'll read here a little bit and we'll take a look at it. All right. So um, it says here. I got to get some things clear out of the way so I can see things clearly. Get that over there. All right. Um, now a certain ruler came and asked him, saying, um, "Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God, and that is God. You and, and he's saying, by the way, that he is God. If he's calling him good, he is God. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these, he said, one thing you lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. And we are not told that he followed him. Uh, Jesus said when he became sorrowful, when, and when he saw that he became sorrowful, he said, how hard is it for those who are rich to enter in the kingdom of heaven? So that's part of what's going on here. Um, John 3.16 is not a standalone verse, Bill. It's a verse that's connected with, with all that other, the rest of it, all the way down to whoever does not believe is condemned already, that you find after it. Before that, you must be born again. You gotta be born of the spirit and born of the flesh. Your spirit has to be brought to life. When Adam and Eve sinned, it died or it went dormant and has to be brought back to life again. Um, Romans uh, 10 talks about believing and being saved. So you wanna take all of these things into account when you're looking at salvation passages. People are individuals. And that's why I believe that one using one mode of witnessing is limiting. We have the Holy Spirit. We want to be led by the Holy Spirit. And God could grant someone to believe when you take a step out to share, when you take a step in faith to share with them. And I, I can tell you, I've seen people genuinely commit their lives to Christ when I've just simply asked them, do you want to give your lives to Jesus? And they say yes. And they respond and they get saved and they commit their lives to the Lord. Um, and so that's different. Um, here, this ruler thought he was good, right? I've done everything. But Jesus showed him that he had covetousness. No one's good but God. And he, he went away sad and his heart was not granted for repentance at that time. And so I don't think that they, these are modes of salvation 
that are being brought up in these different accounts of people's salvation. We have the thief on the cross. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Today I tell you the truth, you will be with me in paradise, right? Um, the, the Philippian jailer, uh, what must I do to be saved? He didn't give him John 3.16. He said, believe and be baptized, you and your whole family, and you will be saved. And, and the, the Ethiopian eunuch, there's water. What stops me from being baptized? So his baptism became his point of faith. For a lot of people today, raising their hand, praying a prayer is their point of faith. It may be that they hear someone who talks to them and reveals to them that they're a sinner, which is what Jesus was doing with the rich young ruler, that they would come to Christ as well. It's interesting to me that this rich young ruler did not come to Christ. So um, God works in the hearts of people. He knows what's going on in the, the lives of people. We don't know. He knew what was going on in the heart of this rich young ruler, Bill. We don't know what's going on in his heart. And so we want to be led by the Spirit when we share our faith and know that sometimes it might be reading them John 3, 16. Sometimes it might be like the rich young ruler. You know, have you, have you looked at a woman with lust? Because Jesus said you committed adultery in your heart. Then you're an adulterer. And you, what are you gonna, now you're going to be judged by him, heaven or hell. And again, that falls back into the Ray Comfort whole, you know, concept, which I, I like. I like to be able to share that with certain people. I just don't want to get bound to it. I don't think that's the only way that people can evangelize. And I think you get dangerous. It's dangerous when you fall into that particular trap. All right. So um, thank you, Bill, very much uh, for your question. I hope that that gives you uh, the answer uh, to what you were looking for there. All right. So we have a question from Adam. Um, Adam P. Adam comes to us from YouTube. Adam says, question on Mark 8, 28. Why the disciples say the people think Jesus is one of the previous prophets? Was incarnation a belief in their time or were they referring to him uh, just as a prophet? All right, well, let's go there. Let's go to um, Mark 8, 28. I want to be able to read this passage and take a look at it. And again, you know, you're answering these things off the top of your head. Um, sometimes after you give it a little bit of thought, um, sometimes I think I could have answered that question better, but I generally don't think it now. I think it later as I think back on these questions that were asked. Um, and so, um, okay, um, all right, let me go ahead and bring you this up on the screen here and you can take a look at it. So here it says, um, so they answered John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say they am? Peter said uh, to him, you are the Christ. Uh, and he strictly warned him that he should tell no one. Um, so yeah, this is one of those areas too um, that I have questions like you do as well as to what exactly they believed in their day. Um, another one of them is when they see the man who's born blind and the disciples say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Well, if he was born blind, then he only had nine months in the womb to do some sin. So did they believe it was possible to sin in the womb? Did they believe it was possible? Did they believe that in reincarnation to some degree. I don't believe that they did. I don't see any evidence of that and I've never heard any evidence of it. But somehow, I mean, Elijah was going to come back. 
So maybe they believe that somehow uh, that Jesus was one of the prophets in the way that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And uh, Jesus says, if you can handle it, John was Elijah, but Elijah will come back again. And so that's like, what do you mean if I can handle it? He is Elijah. He's, he's, he's either Elijah or he's not. But he's coming and, and he's in the position of Elijah as a forerunner. Um, Elijah's going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so maybe there was something like that going on. I don't think I've ever heard in Judaism that there was any belief in, in reincarnation as you see it taught in the East today. You're going to come back and live another life and that, n- none of that. I think that there probably was some other things that they were thinking about or ways that they thought about it, like Elijah coming back before the great and terrible day of the Lord and you know wondering if John the Baptist is Elijah. So I think that that kind of fits with that. And they thought Jesus was Elijah as well. Remember, Elijah was taken up into heaven, and so was Enoch. Um, and so eh, I, I, I think that that's the best answer that I can give to you there. I, I do think that we don't know completely and totally exactly what they believed. I think that we can really dive into it, and I think that we may be able to figure it out. And maybe there's some scholars out there who understand it and who do really know what they believe. But I, I find myself coming across things like you do and going, what did they believe? that they believe that this man could ascend in order to be born blind. Do they believe that, you know, in some kind or some form of reincarnation? If they did, it's obviously unbiblical and it's not true, even if they believe that. All right, so thank you very much for your question. So we have a question here from Tina, um, Andy and Tina. They say in 2 Timothy 4, 1, where it says the Lord Christ will judge the living and the dead, if we go to heaven after we die, who is the dead they are referring to in that verse? All right, well, let's just go ahead and pull that verse up. Uh, this is first or second? Second Timothy, Second Timothy four one. All right, now I'll go ahead and bring this up here, and we'll see if we can determine anything from it. All right, so the passage says, um, "I charge you before." God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort. So your question is on him judging the living and the dead. Um, Okay, and let me go back to your question because I want to make sure that I answer this, uh, answer all of your aspects to it. Um, So you said, if we go to heaven after we die, who is the dead they are referring to and in the verse. All right, Andy and Tanya, thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. So God not only judges the dead. So the Bible says it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. And so there are people who are part of the second death or the second resurrection who are going to be brought back to life and then they're going to be judged. They're going to be resurrected, given back their bodies, and then they're going to be resurrected and then they're going to be judged. So that's judging the dead. God judges the living as well. He passes judgment on individuals. Sometimes he cuts people's lives short. He judges uh, Christians who are genuine Christians and are doing things that are wrong and God will bring judgment into their lives. Judgment starts in the house of God 
Um, he will also judge during the tribulation period, all of those who are living on the earth at that time. And he will bring his wrath and his judgment upon them. So the dead that he's referring to are those that die who are not in Christ. And they are part of the second death, which is something that is really, really scary anyway, isn't it? That that would be part of that. All right. So thank you very much. I'm going to bring one more question in here. We're coming to the end of our hour. I appreciate you guys. Uh, I look forward to seeing you on Saturday. We'll have another Truth Quest Q&A. We'll take time uh, to look at scriptures through the lens. Uh, I look at your questions through the lens of scripture. Uh, if you have questions, go ahead and write them out now. I use them for future Q&As for the first question. So go ahead and write your question there. I'll take a look and see if I can get it in. You can also ask it again in a further Q&A. Renee, good to see you. Renee says, the question is from one of my church friends. Sure it is, Renee. No, I'm kidding. What is the difference between um, propitiation and atoning? Thank you, Pastor Robert. All right. Thank you very much, Renee. I appreciate you. Uh, propitiation means a sacrifice that can satisfy. That's propitiation. And really, it means the only sacrifice that can, can satisfy. Um, and Jesus is our propitiation, the Bible says. There's no other name given under heaven whereby we can be saved. That's the only sacrifice that's going to satisfy. Atonement means that something has taken your place. So the work of Christ on the cross is an atoning work. It's the substitutionary work of Christ where he atones for my sins with his own sacrifice. Both of them are talking about sacrifices. One of them is the only sacrifice that would satisfy, and the other one is Jesus taking our place in the atoning work on the cross. Okay, so thank you very much. It, um, it's a little after one, um, 401, so it's good to see you guys. I hope you are really blessed. It's been good to spend this time with you. Uh, stay close to Jesus. Um, love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Search the word of God to find out what you believe. Um, don't you don't have to be dogmatic about everything you can have nuances in what you believe you can say i don't know i'm searching that um you can have a shelf in your mind chuck smith used to talk about him in a shelf in his brain whereby which he would go i i don't know i need more information before i can make a decision so you can have more information so may the lord be with you may he bring you peace May you find yourself close to him. We've got a service in two hours, six o'clock, YouTube and Facebook. Uh, you can join us there or you can come live if you're in Tucson. We'd love to have you come out and be a part of that service. All right. So God bless you guys. I am signing out. I will see you guys.